Well, it has been a beautiful morning this already. I don't know about you. I have been really blessed by what's already taken place. I've been looking forward to July 16 for quite a while. This is my opportunity to share with my Faith Church family and uh, this weekend next. And I'm, I'm very happy to have this opportunity. There's a phrase on an office poster that says, As you slide down the banister of life, may all the slivers be going in the same direction. <laughs> it's a funny saying, but life doesn't seem to work out that way, does it? Most of us, uh, we know how we want things to go. We have thoughts about what a successful day or a year or maybe life looks like. Uh, But unplanned problems and hardships broadside us. One of the most astute lines in all pop music comes from an old John Lennon song. Life is what happens to you while you are busy making other plans. When things go wrong, we are usually caught by surprise and we suddenly find ourselves in a state of affairs that we don't want to be in. We thought we were going here, and instead we found ourselves over here. And the Bible provides a metaphor for that place, the wilderness. We're using two Sunday mornings to examine the wilderness and how we keep walking while we are there. If you're not experiencing wilderness today, some of this may not feel relevant until a later time. So I invite you to grab a pen and a card from the chair pocket in front of you and take notes for later on in case you need them. And you will. Most Sundays in this summer series in the Psalms, we we study a specific psalm pretty much in expository fashion. But this weekend next, the psalm serves more as a thematic springboard. If you have read Psalm 88, as suggested as homework in your faith news this week, you've got a bonus because the scripture we're going to actually read this morning is from Deuteronomy. So the first question, who went to the wilderness? In some cases, it seems God is big on actually sending his people into wilderness places. We could quickly think of Moses, John the Baptist, Elijah, the Israelites, even Jesus himself. But the answer to who goes into the wilderness, the best answer is everyone. Everyone goes into the wilderness. This is a universal experience, although the type, depth, and length of our wilderness times are extremely diverse. Let's turn now to Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 through 5 and 11 through 16. Read from God's word. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes as I have commanded you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full, and you have built good houses and lived in them, And when your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, 
then your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, but who brought you water out of the flinty rock and who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. This is the word of the Lord. So we've answered who, next why. Why does God often choose wilderness for his people? We read at the end of this passage that actually it's a terrible place. Just consider the wilderness environment. It is stark, lonely, unforgiving, rocky, even fraught with dangers of all kinds, as specifically mentioned at the end of this passage. For most creatures like us, it is a place of vulnerability and perhaps even death. What really is the point of wilderness? Well, in the case of Israel, as they left Egypt bound for the promised land, God knew he needed to transform his children into a people he would before the world call his own. He started by eliminating everything that was familiar to them. He got their attention that way, and he could then mold them. As we have read, Moses said that God led his people into the wilderness to humble them, and to test them, and in the end, to do them good. Now, they might have guessed the first part of that, but I'll bet they wouldn't have believed those last words while they wandered around the desert for 40 years. So the wilderness accomplished two primary things. It's the place where God could mold his people's faith as they had to depend on him, and the place where he could prepare them for their future. As the story goes... When the time came for the Israelites to move into the land, promised to them many generations earlier, they were afraid to forge ahead, even though they had just seen some of the most amazing all-time miracles of God as they were delivered from slavery in Egypt. So God had to work with them in the wilderness to prepare a people who would move into the land promised to their forefather Abraham. And these two primary reasons for Israel's time in the wilderness apply to us also. First, the wilderness is there to create the environment for God to mold us, test us, and build our faith. Many Christians have memorized Romans 8.28, which says that we know uh, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And we tend to interpret that to be our good. But maybe that verse is actually talking about God's good plan. We also need to go on to the next verse, which says that he called us to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, given our natural lost human condition, that requires a lot of change. And change is usually unpleasant. But being conformed to the image of Christ turns out to be God's greatest blessing to us. God understands our desire to avoid pain and suffering. He doesn't expect us to long for wilderness experiences. But he has revealed sound reasons why he allows, even designs, wilderness times for us. He loves us so much that he is willing to struggle through difficulties with us to achieve his grandest ends for us. His goals for us as his children are definitely loftier than our own, to be sure. And then secondly, God uses wilderness to prepare us for our future. So 
Sometimes the way he does that is to allow circumstances that cause us to wonder what is happening, to ask questions, feel lonely, or maybe caught in a hopeless situation. But whether we're considering our earthly or heavenly future, God uses our wilderness times to prepare us for what lies ahead. So, given the who and the why, we're going to consider what presses us into the wilderness in the first place. And I can pinpoint at least seven things, and these will take the rest of our time today. You'll have to hang on till next week for the rest. Uh, but for now, what gets us into the wilderness? First, the consequences of our own recklessness and sin can drag us into the wilderness. And we're going to spend much more time on this first reason for wilderness than any of the other six because it is controllable and common. Sometimes even after we know we've been forgiven, we must continue to deal with consequences of things we've done. One thing that young people need to hear is simple caution against recklessness. And those of here who aren't so young anymore would probably agree that we needed this advice in our younger years as well. When I was personally directing Campus Life Club programs in public schools in the area, uh, if a crisis occurred, I sometimes served with a team of other youth workers who would be considered first response counselors in the schools. And one situation I'll never forget involved two Lawrence North High School students. They were in a dating relationship. The guy had called his girlfriend at the last minute to go see a late movie. He went to her house and they took off in a rush. Now, those of you who live in the Fall Creek area of the LN district know about the hills and the curves. Uh, the kids were racing to make the movie. They lost control of the car in a curve and one of the most horrific wrecks I've ever seen resulted. The police couldn't even tell which student had been driving but depending which one it was, alcohol could have been involved. Because these students had attended Campus Life and several of our regulars were their friends, Youth for Christ staff were specifically called to the scene the next morning. It was uh, surreal. Dazed, crying kids were roaming around in the woods looking for relics, but they weren't even sure why. It was like nobody knew what to do in those first hours after the news of this tragedy. It was a very strange experience for us all, but ultimately, we could only chalk this terrible incident up to one thing, recklessness. A similar story appeared on our local news just this last week. 17-year-old girl driving 80 miles per hour on a rural road just northeast of Indy in Clinton County she became airborne over a hill, lost control, and smashed into a home, killing two kids and injuring their mom. Again, recklessness brought disaster. Recklessness can be exciting or disguised as fun, but the consequences can cause a long, deep trip into the wilderness or even be deadly. If you are prone to recklessness or impulsive decision-making, Grab the book of Proverbs very close to the middle of your Bible and carefully read one chapter every night for the next month. You will finish the book in that time and you will be better for it. Now, recklessness is unfortunate and it causes a lot of problems, but outright sin is another thing. Because God loves us, he has given us many scriptural warnings and commands to protect and guide us through this life and into the next. 
he has risked giving us the impression that he's all about rules, when in reality, he's trying to help us. But in spite of his commands and his love, we all disobey at times. We sometimes know we are right in the act, but we keep on going, committing the sin anyway, don't we? Jesus said very plainly in John 14, 15, and elsewhere, that if we love him, we will obey him. If we love him, we will obey him. If we love him, we will obey him. You see, it really is about love. And it works both ways. None of us wants to be guilty of standing in church week after week, singing about our love for Jesus, while knowingly living in disobedience. And frankly, the scriptures don't give us that option. Just as James pronounced that faith without works is dead, so Jesus clarifies that love for God without obedience is dead. And as a bonus, consider this from John 14, 21. God will reveal himself to those who love and obey him. Compare that to the tangle of shallow returns and consequences that come from sinful disobedience. Sin itself takes us to a wilderness place. A prominent pastor who resigned from his church after revealing that he was guilty of a moral failure is speaking out as he copes with the very public fallout. I have been forced to face myself in a deeper way than ever before, and I have come to two conclusions. I am far worse than I ever thought I was, and God's grace is infinitely greater than I could have ever hoped for or imagined. Tulian Trevigin, grandson of the famed preacher Billy Graham, who recently vacated his position as pastor of the Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, spoke out in an in-depth interview saying, I'm alive and breathing and I'm doing far better than I deserve. The pastor landed in the headlines after admitting that his marriage has been in turmoil after discovering that his wife, Kim, was having an affair earlier this year. He also admitted that he subsequently had an affair of his own. Chavijan remarked, this is the darkest season of my life. I am 43 years old and I have never experienced a season this dark before. Trevigian said, I am experiencing the weight of the law. I've lost everything, book deals, book deals canceled, lost my job, all my speaking engagements canceled, reputation soiled, I mean everything. When the scandal first broke in the media, Chavijan said that it was, he was very, very isolated, beating himself up as he considered the weight of his actions and the impact that they would have on his children, the church, and the credibility of the gospel. I am swimming in the sea of my consequences. I feel like crawling into a hole and dying most days. But he explained that he is now finding grace and redemption as God has surrounded him with good people who are helping him through. Sin that leads to wilderness includes hidden sin. And I don't want to leave this point without echoing a single word uttered by Pastor Tom Macy in the midst of a message years ago that addressed the far too common and ruinous pitfall and today epidemic disastrous proportions of pornography. His one word was stop, run, don't walk, stop dancing with the devil. 
Participating in things like this establishes a disturbing inconsistency in our lives. We pray to God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then we steer our eyes and hearts straight toward temptation and sin. Jesus was serious about this too. Matthew records Jesus saying that even gouging out an eye would be preferable to knowingly continuing in a sin. Now he was surely using hyperbole, but if a person were squarely and immediately faced with the choice between abandoning this sin or losing their right eye, I'll bet the issue would resolve rather quickly. The bigger issue here is, of course, guarding our hearts and minds, which is a huge concern to God. Again, because he loves us so much. I'll never forget the morning. A good buddy marched into the big factory maintenance room where we both worked summers in high school and college. He had a determined look on his face and a big, full paper grocery sack in his hand. He walked straight to a workbench, plopped the sack down, grabbed a sledgehammer, and started pummeling the sack. We wondered what in the world was going on as we heard plastic breaking into a million pieces as he pounded the sack over and over. When he stopped, we could see that the sack was full of audio cassette tapes. And for those of you under 20, that's is what that looks like. It holds music just like your iPod. My friend explained that he was attending a special seminar that week. For those of you as old as me, it was a Bill Gothard seminar, if you remember those. And um, he was realizing that the very offensive music he always listened to was negatively affecting his heart and mind. And he knew it was time to gouge out an eye over this area of his life. And by doing this at work, he was also inviting us as his close friends to hold him accountable. Great idea. Faith church friends, we cannot deny that among the hundreds of hearts and minds that will walk through this building this morning, there are many unintentional and unconfessed transgressions of God's loving commands. If that is the case for you, I pray that God will, right at this moment, reveal what that sin or sins are so you can repent and stop. I can tell you this is what Christ would say. His words to people of his day when caught in clear sin were, go your way and sin no more. Being translated, that is what Tom said. Stop it. It's for our good. It's part of God's grace, protecting us from unnecessary wilderness. And we're going to pause right now to meditate on this and remember the love of God our Redeemer. Reach my 
Oh 
the quickest way to lose control of your life is to knowingly give in to sin. I say this especially to the young people here today. Sin is never worth it. It may seem like it for a fleeting moment, but there will be a price to someone somewhere. If you're prone to recurring disobedience or find yourself morally weak, as I said before, grab the book of Proverbs, very close to the middle of your Bible. Carefully read a chapter every night for the next month and you will be better for it, as well as finishing the book. Unless we fall out of balance regarding obedience, I should just mention that obedience to God is as much or more about doing God's will as avoiding sin. If you're looking for fulfillment in life, doing God's will is where that starts. A second reason we might find ourselves in wilderness is falling victim to or enduring the consequences of somebody else's sin. Jesus knows personally what this is like, having been beaten to a pulp, then hung by nails on a cross of wood because of an uninterrupted history of other men and women who chose disobedience over God's love and glory. My guess is that every one of us here could tell many stories of people suffering because of the sins of others. A number of years ago, we were enjoying a few days at a National Youth for Christ conference and one of our leaders took the platform suddenly to deliver some tragic news. A wonderful young couple in their 20s had gone to Africa and as house parents with a YFC ministry for boys who had been rescued from the streets of Nairobi. A few months after their arrival, they were enjoying an afternoon off, hiking in the hills outside Nairobi. They were attacked by some men and were robbed, beaten, and this young lady was assaulted twice bringing with it <clears throat> the risk of HIV. And in the midst of the assault, even their wedding rings were stolen. It was devastating, awful stuff. And when I heard the report very shortly after it occurred, I began to doubt the goodness of the God I profess to serve. I, uh, I knew these, these were my Youth for Christ partners. They're doing what God has called them to do. They're obeying. And yet God allowed this senseless, violent crime against them. And as I've continued in ministry, uh, lately spending time in some of the spiritually darkest nations on earth, uh, the questions can still plague me at times. Uh, it's likely that many here this morning are suffering the effects of the wayward choices of others. I've known many parents whose hearts ache over the poor choices their own kids are making, and they're in a wilderness place. They can't control it. It can make a parent question all kinds of assumptions about themselves or about God and his ways. What can we say about this reason for wilderness? It raises serious questions in our hearts and minds. Questions God is not surprised with or shocked at, but nevertheless, he rarely answers or explains. Trusting in God is a choice we must continue to make as life goes on. But given all the evidence, and as we read his word, we can rest assured that God is good, he loves us, and he hurts with us in our times of wilderness. The Bible tells us that God, who came to us in flesh as Jesus Christ, was a man of many sorrows. And when we think of him giving his life on a cross of wood to pay the penalty for our sin, we know 
He loves us and is deeply acquainted with wilderness. And sometimes when I'm doubting, that's the trump card I have to play for myself. Remember that man hanging on that cross for my sin. He loves me. Third, another reason we stumble into the wilderness is that there really is an active enemy of our souls. We really do have a tenacious enemy who wants to destroy us. According to 1 Peter 5.8, our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan wants to make and keep us discouraged and deceived, and sometimes he takes us to the wilderness. If you doubt that statement, consider the story of Job, recorded in the Bible, in the book bearing his name, also near the middle of your Bible. Satan commonly uses the tool of temptation to point us into the wilderness, and this may sound similar to my previous points, but if this illustration sticks with you this morning, as it has for me many years, uh, it's worth telling. Some of you know my family uh, went to run a camp in the wilderness outside of Juneau, Alaska, when our kids were 8 and 11 years old. We gained some fascinating insights from life in the north. One powerful illustration of the way Satan works through sin is seen in the way Eskimos kill a troublesome, dangerous wolf. The Eskimo dips a knife blade into animal blood and holds it and allows it to freeze. He then continues dipping the knife, adding layer after layer until the blade blood is completely uh, covering and frozen over this blade. He then licks, uh, it sticks it into the ground or the ice and leaves it, goes home for the night. The wolf finds it by smelling the blood. He then licks it. He tastes the blood. Oh, that's good. And through the cold night, he licks faster and his desire for blood becomes greater. The wolf's tongue becomes numb because of the frozen blood, so he does not notice when the, blood, the knife begins to slice his tongue. Nor does he notice that eventually his thirst is being satisfied with his own blood. The wolf is found dead in the snow the next morning. And this is how temptation leads to sin, which leads to death. Don't be fooled by the enemy of your soul. The wages of sin is wilderness and death. Sometimes circumstances take us into the wilderness. Disappointments can cause deep wilderness experiences, as we've already considered during this summer series. Things like divorce, a death, or chronic illness. My wife, Valerie, experienced a deep time of wilderness as her mother battled cancer and went home to Jesus some years ago. Circumstances include things like the loss of a job or the inability to get the job that you've prepared for, things like uh, the loss of a dream or a difficult and unexpected life transition. Maybe the empty nest stage of life has created some wilderness for you. Those kids were so dear to you and now they're at college or maybe living far away and things are different from what you anticipated. Perhaps you're waiting on God to answer a prayer that is just as foggy today as the first time you ever prayed it. Circumstances. Another way we get into the wilderness is that God takes us there. That's right. God takes us there. Matthew says that Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit, and Mark says the Spirit of God drove him into the wilderness. 
In his case, we know part of the reason was be tempted, to be tempted in ways we would never understand. But in our case, sometimes God just wants to prune us so we will bear good fruit or more good fruit. In John 15, we're told that God prunes us often. And what is pruning? Maybe not all of us here actually know what that is. Is it repairing and lovingly taking care of certain branches? No, it is cutting them off. Pruning is removal of undesirable branches. It sounds painful, and it is when it's happening in our lives. But remember, as we said at the onset, that God loves us so much that he's willing to struggle with us through the difficulties to achieve his grandest ends. How many of you have toured the Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina? Any of you been there? I figured there'd be a few, yep. They take you through a mind-boggling mansion, vineyard, and winery. Uh, one of the signs in the vineyard explains that as the vine grows, branches also grow on it, and they become very wild. They almost take on a life of their own. So in order to keep the plant healthy, here's what the sign says, you have to prune the branches away. And the reason you need to cut the branches is so that the plant will concentrate the life from the roots into the vine, not all the branches. What an awesome image Jesus gave us to explain how our relationship works with our Father in heaven. He prunes us so close that we will send our roots deep into Christ as the vine, our source of life. And he will take us into the wilderness to accomplish that when necessary. That's really hard to be thankful for. But maybe we should force ourselves to express gratitude for that at times. And the next reason we can talk about here is probably pretty puzzling for us, but it's possible to find ourselves in the wilderness, perhaps even a very long wilderness experience, that God's power might be displayed. In John 9, Jesus' disciples asked about a blind man. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he is blind? It was an assumption of that day when, then, you know, when problems occur, this is predictably the result of sin in somebody's life. But listen to what Jesus said. It was neither that this man sinned or his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. Wow, stop and think about that. This man experienced a dark, lifelong wilderness so that his situation could be used to glorify God when Jesus healed him publicly. My wilderness trials can occur simply so God can show himself strong through my life. That is, of course, his right as creator of all things. It is our job to realize it is all about him and his glory. And that's enough. Now, if that doesn't fully make sense to us or seem fair to us now, it is because we, there's so much that we don't understand. And I really suspect that one day we will see things properly and regret ever thinking otherwise. And finally, our assumptions about God and how he works are often wrong. So we might experience what we'd call wilderness simply because our expectations do not reflect reality. And so we become very disappointed in life. One basic misalignment of our expectations is our natural tendency to think that things, experiences, or even people are going to satisfy us fully. Many people become cynical and disappointed in worldly things or relationships 
because they expect these things to bring full satisfaction. But friends, nothing in this earthly life satisfies us fully because it wasn't meant to. The good, beautiful, and enjoyable things in this world are meant to point us to God, who is our ultimate source of satisfaction. We're often reminded of that from this pulpit, and I'm thankful for that. A spin-off of this common wishful trap is this is uh, sorry, a spin-off of this idea is a common wishful trap of if only. Uh, if only this or that. And this is often tied to the past in some way. We can become very nostalgic for the good old days, uh, which in most cases are better in memory than they were in reality. Uh, a clever quote I recently saw says, we are the most homesick for places we never really knew. In Philippians 3, Paul writes that he forgets what is behind and strains toward what is ahead. And personally, I'm very glad that God does this. We are told that when we approach God humbly, admitting our disobedience and seeking forgiveness, that he lavishes his grace on us and remembers our sins no more. He doesn't look back. And I, for one, am very thankful for that. And our mistaken expectations are not limited to earthly things. This can affect our spiritual lives as well. 1 Corinthians 4.18 tells us, Fix your eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now this thought could be a little abstract, so I'll, I'll use one example here. Whether we realize it or not, we often uh, expect God to respond or honor to us in certain ways because we have done good things or been obedient. If we obey our earthly parents, we learn to expect rewards or certain treatment in return. And if we disobey them, we expect the opposite. That's kind of the way that relationship works. But in God's big economy, it can be very different. We can't directly associate wilderness with disobedience every time or link a happy, flawless life on this earth with obedience and purity. Obedience does not always equal or lead to success as we understand it. I'll bet nearly all of you would agree with that if you saw it on a survey as a question. But nevertheless, most of us kind of have these thoughts that there's this automatic link between our relationship with and obedience to God and how things go in our earthly lives. In John 3.26, we learn that John the Baptist's followers came to him and they're kind of whining. It seems this Jesus you baptized is having a great ministry and now our numbers are dwindling. John's response, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. And that joy is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. In other words, John's obedience in his godly submission to his calling led to him being left behind in the world's eyes, and eventually he was beheaded. Nobody can say the Bible is not full of drama. If it were true that obedience to God invariably results in material or other presumed signs of success, then a lot of disobedient people have gone to the mission field. For example, when the gospel first moved into the interior of Africa, it's estimated that 80 to 90% of those messengers were killed during their first two years of service. 
All of them would said they were obeying what they believed God called them to do. Yet most, by far, became martyrs. There are Bible verses, especially in the Psalms, as we're looking at this summer, that in principle link obedience with prosperity. So our impressions about this are understandable if we don't balance those verses with the rest of Scripture. But in light of all Scripture, especially the New Testament, we have to abandon our expectations that if we are obedient, God will automatically enrich us materially and physically. That is TV religion, not biblical Christianity. And fortunately, we hear about this, and we're challenged about this from this pulpit often as well. We instead have to come to the point where we tell God, Lord, if you want to strip us of everything, even our very lives, it's yours, and we are going to be obedient anyway. And friends, if you have not come to that point in your walk with God, frankly, you, you need to be concerned. This is a basic expectation Christ has of his followers. We could launch into another whole sermon about that, but if, if this is, thought is challenging you anew, uh, I recommend you grab David Platt's book, Radical, Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream. It's not a long read, but its message is critical if this issue is not settled in your life. And only you know whether it is or not. Well, as we close our list of reasons for wilderness, I'm going to say that the odds of figuring out which of these seven reasons is the reason you find yourself in a particular wilderness experience are about nil. That's right. We have answers to the question, why wilderness? But we don't know which answers apply when. So you'll always end up with enough mystery to require some faith. I'm guessing that maybe now some of you are wondering why we have taken all this time for this. So I'll just say, for one thing, I really believe there is value in knowing that there are many reasons that we can find ourselves in the wilderness. Many reasons. And they are reasons. It's not just random and unfair. It's not fate karma, whatever we want to call it. There are reasons, and it is helpful to know what some of those are. But given that I'm speaking to a room full of Americans who are known the world over for our compulsion to analyze, we should say that you are not going to figure this out most of the time, and that is not what's important. We spend too much wilderness time licking our wounds and trying to analyze whether God is mad at us, whether he still cares, whether he's paying attention, what have I done wrong, on and on it goes. I mean, if you can relate to that, raise your hand, because that's, I spent a lot of time in the wilderness thinking that way, trying to figure it out. But don't waste time with that. Focus instead on the God who is present with you there, before, during, and after. The thing that really matters, of course, is how we respond. And those two ideas, the ways God is present with you in the wilderness and how we can best respond to wilderness are going to be our focus next week. You have only half of the equation right now. We'll call it the dark half. <laughs> I hope you'll be back next Sunday for the rest. Personally, I can't wait.